beginning in Habakkuk 2, verse 6, we have a section of teaching that scholars refer to as the woe oracles. Now, this is based on a translation of the Hebrew word hoy, which sets off five different um, bits of, of teaching. Some scholars would translate this as woe. Others would translate it a bit more generally, just as something that is meant to get the attention of the audience, like, hey, um, what follows that is usually you who do something. So it could be, hey, you who do something that's bad that we want to call out here. However, we, we look at this, we have five different blocks of, of teaching. Scholars don't know who is speaking these five things, whether it's God or whether it's Habakkuk. Scholars also don't know who the reference are of these five things. A lot of people would say Babylon, but it's also pretty general, um, which as we'll see has uh, allowed folks throughout the history of interpretation to find different reference for the woe oracles. Now, in our time today, I don't want to say a whole lot about what's happening here. I really just want to read the text and then maybe provide a couple of, of comments, a couple of spicy comments, if you will. Um, so this is Habakkuk chapter 2, beginning in verse... I'm actually going to begin in verse 5. I'm reading from Eugene Peterson's translation, The Message, really just because I think that it, it, it grabs us. Um, it's helpful language that we can... Uh, hear and immediately understand, okay? So now in, in verse 5, again, scholars would say that this is still part of God's final response to Habakkuk um, in 2, 2 through 5, and then 6 and following is, is the woe oracles that then introduce Habakkuk's um, psalm in Habakkuk chapter 3. Okay, so there's a lot of things going on here, but really I just want, to, want you to hear the words and maybe think less about the critical issues um, than you would or than I would force upon you. Okay, so this is Habakkuk chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. It says, Note well, money deceives. The arrogant rich don't last. They are more hungry for wealth than the grave is for cadavers. Like death, they always want more, but the more they get is dead bodies. They are cemeteries filled with dead nations, graveyards filled with corpses. Don't give people like this a second thought. Soon the whole world will be taunting them. Who do you think you are getting rich by stealing and extortion? How long do you think you can get away with this? Indeed, how long before your victims wake up? Stand up and make you the victim. You've plundered nation after nation. Now you'll get a taste of your own medicine. All the survivors are out to plunder you, a payback for all your murders and massacres. Who do you think you are? Recklessly grabbing and looting, living it up, acting like the king of the mountain, acting above it all, above trials and troubles. You've engineered the ruin of your own house. In ruining others, you've ruined yourself. You've undermined your foundations, rotted out your own soul. The bricks of your house will speak up and accuse you. The woodwork will step forward with evidence. Who do you think you are? Building a town by murder, 
a city with crime. Don't you know that God of the angel armies makes sure nothing comes of that but ashes? Make sure the harder you work at that kind of thing, the less you are. Meanwhile, the earth fills up with awareness of God's glory as the waters cover the seas. Who do you think you are? Inviting your neighbors to drunken parties, giving them too much to drink, roping them into your sexual orgies. You thought you were having the time of your life. Wrong. It's a time of disgrace. All the time you were drinking, you were drinking from the cup of God's wrath. You'll wake up holding your throbbing head, hung over, hung over from the Lebanon violence, hung over from animal massacres, hung over from murder and mayhem, from multiple violations of place and people. What's the use of a carved god so skillfully carved by its sculptor? What good is a fancy cast god when all it tells is lies? What sense does it make to be a pious god-maker? Who makes gods that can't even talk? Who do you think you are? Saying to a stick of wood, wake up, or to a dumb stone, get up. Can they teach you anything about anything? There's nothing to them but surface. There's nothing on the inside. But oh, God is in his holy temple. Quiet everyone. A holy silence. Listen. The word of God for the people of God. Now you can tell here that Peterson translates hoy as who do you think you are? And he sets out five of these different um, categories of, of woe or things that he's attempting to call attention to. Now, how I'd like to frame this, you can, you can read this in a couple of different ways, and especially when you get into uh, the, the fourth of these woe oracles, the ones about inviting your neighbors to drunken parties and roping them into sexual orgies. It seems very individual. Um, you would also be good to remember that throughout the Old Testament, a, a lot of times this sort of um, ravaging has a larger metaphorical application to nations. And what we see really in these five uh, different woes would be the sins of maybe Babylon, who are um, looting and destroying and turning places into ruins for their own benefit and gain. And it's interesting that throughout the history of interpretation in the book of Habakkuk, what we see uh, are different communities sort of updating the text. And since Babylon was destroyed by Persia in the uh, 6th century, uh, late 6th century, I think, early 5th century, what we see here are people that have been reading this text after Babylon and then updating it so that Babylon is no longer the, the potential referent. For example, there's a community of interpreters who um, position themselves in Qumran. This is the Qumran community. Some people think that it might be the Essenes. We don't know, but either way, these are the folks that were 
copying what have become the Dead Sea Scrolls, some of the earliest texts that we have of the Hebrew Bible. And they were living out in the middle of nowhere in the desert. And for these um, copyists, for these scribes, uh, at times they would update the biblical text to refer to their own community. When they did this, they would call their work a pesher. This is an interpretation of the Bible that would be updated for their own specific needs. This is something that happened all throughout the history of of interpretation. And even we see this within the Old Testament itself. But this Qumran community would um, not view Babylon as the, the referent. Instead, they would view Rome, which was the imperial power of the day, as the referent and kind of insert them into the text here. Now, this is sort of uh, triggered some of my thinking on this passage, and I'm going to be honest with you. These are very uh, initial thoughts. Uh, they're very ill-formed thoughts. Um, on a normal week, this might be something that I just kind of put off to the side and, and, and come back to after a little bit more time of, of thinking through what, um, what, what's going on here. But what I find interesting about this um, updating of the text is that if we follow that through in our own moment and ask ourselves the very um, difficult question of who is the empire today? We might be led to at least one possible answer that is difficult for us to hear. I would also say that oftentimes when we read the Bible, we usually and very quickly place ourselves as readers into the role of um, the positive characters in the Bible. So, for example, if we're reading the story of the Exodus, where we have um, a group of enslaved Israelites serving an oppressive master uh, in Egypt who are being forced to build store cities at the behest of Pharaoh, we usually place ourselves in that position, awaiting the Lord to bring us out of whatever bondage it is that we happen to be. And then really never once do we think that potentially the characters in the story that we embody a bit more closely would be those in power, those who are doing the subjugating, those who are ruling over others. It's the same even when we read stories in the New Testament where we look at the disciples and it's rare that we might think of ourselves as Judas. We don't think of ourselves as the one who might betray Jesus. We don't think of ourselves uh, either as Peter. Peter was, in, in our thinking, Peter was a brash um, not uh, very eloquent and not very thoughtful character. We think that if it was up to us, that maybe we would have lasted a bit longer walking 
on the water, or we certainly would have had the um, the courage to speak honestly with a slave girl who's asking us about the person that we have devoted our entire life to following. Yet really, I, if we think about our lives, and I don't want to push my cynicism and skepticism upon you, but if we think about our lives, maybe more often than not, we, we play these roles, whether it's the role of the, uh, the oppressor, the role of the one who is subjugating others to our own whims, the role of the um, disciple who is out for their own interest and will sell out Jesus for a few pieces of silver, or the disciple who doesn't have the courage to tell whoever is asking who they serve, who they believe in, who they follow. And if we have the example of these uh, communities in Qumran that are updating the the text to speak more generally to uh, the larger and more prominent current day empire, perhaps when we look at Habakkuk, we might be missing something that's obvious because of our penchant to see ourselves in the role of the good characters, the ones who are calling out to God violence and injustice. And maybe we're a bit reticent to see how we live out our lives in the midst of the empire. When we hear these uh, descriptions about how Babylon is building towns by murder, a city with crime, where we are recklessly grabbing and looting, living it up, acting like the king of the mountain, like we're above the trials and the troubles, where we're getting rich by stealing and extortion. We think that we can keep getting away with this. Perhaps there is something here for us as Americans to consider. That maybe in the midst of our thoughts about what constitutes a powerful and maybe dangerous and selfish empire, we have more in common with the Babylonians than we do with Habakkuk calling for God to intervene. Now, I understand that um, some of this will probably not be taken well, and I don't mean to denigrate our country. I don't mean to denigrate all of the people who live here, but when we look at our systems, 
And when we think about our political structures, and when we think about where we are, perhaps we should consider the things that we are engaged in that put us in the role of the oppressor. Perhaps we should consider also, as it says towards the end, in the, in the fifth in the fifth woe or the fifth hey you, this, this diatribe about idolatry. And perhaps we might do well to look in the mirror and consider our own idolatrous practices as a country, maybe also as individuals. What's the use of a carved God so skillfully carved by its sculptor? Who do we think that we are saying to a stick of wood, wake up, or to a dumb stone, get up? It's easy for us to read these texts and to immediately go outside and to begin to throw the stones at the, the empires and the, the dictatorships and um, the, the people that are putting others into roles of subservience uh, and oppression. And it's more difficult for us to prayerfully and thoughtfully engage the much more difficult question that we have to ask. How are we playing into those roles? Who do we think that we are? As followers of Jesus, it is my hope that we are able to identify systemic oppression, systemic issues that place certain individuals in subservience and under oppression. And much like Habakkuk, that we can begin to scream violence and injustice while we petition God to intervene and while we act out in a way that promotes justice for all. I don't have um, a lot of wise words here. Perhaps we would do well to hear these words and think about where we fit. If we are the ones doing the praying or if we are the ones who need to hear, who do we think we are? I'm going to end just by reading this passage again and then allowing us to, to sit with it. Note well, money deceives. The arrogant rich, they don't last. They are more hungry for wealth than the grave is for cadavers. Like death, they always want more, but the more they get is dead bodies. They are cemeteries filled with dead nations, graveyards filled with corpses. Don't give people like this a second thought. Soon the whole world will be taunting them. 
Who do you think you are, getting rich by stealing and extortion? How long do you think you can get away with this? Indeed, how long before your victims wake up, stand up, and make you the victim? You've plundered nation after nation. Now you'll get a taste of your own medicine. All the survivors are out to plunder you, a payback for all your murders and massacres. Who do you think you are, recklessly grabbing and looting, living it up, acting like king of the mountain, acting above it all, above trials and troubles? You've engineered the ruin of your own house. In ruining others, you've ruined yourself. You've undermined your foundations, rotted out your own soul. The bricks of your house will speak up and accuse you. The woodwork will step forward with evidence. Who do you think you are, building a town by murder, a city with crime? Don't you know that God of the angel armies makes sure nothing comes of that but ashes? Makes sure the harder you work at that kind of thing, the less you are? Meanwhile, the earth fills up with awareness of God's glory as the waters cover the sea. Who do you think you are? Inviting your neighbors to drunken parties, giving them too much to drink, roping them into your sexual orgies. You thought you were having the time of your life. Wrong. It's a time of disgrace. All the time you were drinking, you were drinking the cup of God's wrath. You'll wake up holding your throbbing head hungover, hungover from Lebanon violence, hungover from animal massacres, hungover from murder and mayhem, from multiple violations of place and people. What's the use of a carved God so skillfully carved by its sculptor? What good is a fancy cast God when all it tells is lies? What sense does it make to be a pious God maker who makes gods that can't even talk? Who do you think you are saying to a stick of wood, wake up, or to a dumb stone, get up? Can they teach you anything about anything? There's nothing to them but surface. There's nothing on the inside, but oh, oh, God is in his holy temple. Quiet everyone, a holy silence. Listen, the word of God for the people of God.